Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And I don't know about you guys, but for me, my daily life is kind of based all around meals. Uh, When I'm doing work, I think about lunch. When I'm getting off of work, I think about dinner. When I wake up, I think about breakfast. I'm constantly thinking about what I'm going to be eating and just kind of waiting for those three points of the day where I get to eat, daydreaming about the options that I have to choose from, and just kind of imagining that moment of filling my mouth and chewing. And three meals a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner seems completely natural to me. It seems like the way that the human body should work. Um, If I miss a meal, I feel less than human, as anybody who's around me when I miss a meal can tell you. I get grumpy and angry and feels like my body is shutting down. But, like everything, the whole three meals a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, with dinner being the big meal, is historically constructed. It has a history. At different times, people ate different amounts of food at different parts of the day. And when I started drafting this episode this morning, I thought that I'd tell you guys a story of how we came to get three meals a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, with dinner being the biggest meal. But as I was getting all my facts together, I realized that I kinda didn't know. Uh, One of the big changes that I know happened is between dinner and supper, the movement of the large meal from midday to about four o'clock to sometime in the evening. But the problem with this move is that it happens at different times for different classes, and different classes in different places at different times of the year ate food in different ways. In the 19th century, for instance, rural laborers could sometimes have up to six meals a day. Now, some of these would be small, just some bread and some beer to take a break during the day, but others would be large. In the 18th century, you have the invention of the new meal of breakfast eaten at home, where you had some bread washed down with some sugared tea. And this pushed out other forms of breakfast or of the uh, uh, mid-morning meal like beer soup. So instead of telling this kind of complicated and geographically changing story of how three meals a day rose, I'm going to tell you guys a story about something linked up, the rise of the restaurant and the associated rise with home cooking. So one of the slow developments of the 18th and 19th century is the development of the familiar restaurant. So think about a restaurant. What is it? Well, you go into a public place and you can go almost any time, any time between, you know, 11 and 8 or 9. And there you can sit at a private table with you and a couple of your friends. You get a menu of available foodstuffs that can often range to over 100 different items. And these are oftentimes nationally appropriate dishes. So you go to a French restaurant to eat French food, a Thai restaurant to eat Thai food. It's associated with the nation. When you're there, each individual piece has a price, and a waitress or a waiter will come up to you, get your order, take it back to, to, to a cook who's hidden from view, who will cook your food, it'll come out to you fully made, and you'll eat it, right? So this view of the restaurant where you have a private meal in public arose in 18th century Paris, and it had a weird start. 
it was one of those weird health fads. So in 18th century Paris, people of delicate constitutions were thought to have different dietary needs. And there was a problem. They needed to eat strong foods like meat. But because they were delicate, their digestion couldn't handle the tough, fibrous substance of meat itself. The solution was to make a consomme, a kind of beef broth or a meat broth, which they called a restaurant, a restorative, something that the ill could drink when they needed it to fulfill their spirits. Now, the ill, unlike normal people, didn't get hungry at set times. They were individuals. Their illnesses marked them as special and sensitive. And so these restaurants needed to be open and available to serve their restorative broths at any time of the day. In the 19th century, the restaurant really comes into its own. It starts to serve other things, not just beef broths and veal broths and stuff. And it gets these menus from which people can choose a wide variety of things. This is the birth of the modern restaurant, the place where you sit at a private table in public and order from a set of prepared foods. And in the 19th century, the early 19th century, they become emblematic of Paris. From Paris, they spread all over the world as people go to Paris and remark about, you know, all of the wonderful things there, including the restaurant. In London, after 1850, you have a number of French hoteliers and chefs who come and bring the ideas of the restaurant to Britain, the ideas of fine dining. And these, like so many things in the 19th century, have kind of been baked into the DNA of Western culture because we have their names on the top of our our, our tongues. If I told you the Ritz, you would immediately get this view of an opulent restaurant where you get served wonderful food and then go and sleep in a, an amazing, lavish, Trump-esque hotel quarters. And that's because a pair of guys, Escalier and Ritz, had a hotel in London where they served novel, ever-changing haute cuisine to the people of London. These places were like places were like modern foodie palaces, right? You went there to dine out in public for your own individual taste to experience the artistic wonders of modern gastronomy. So I've just told you a story of the rise of the modern restaurant, how through contingent changes in the 18th and 19th centuries, this idea of a public place where you could eat a private meal spread. But I want to tell you a parallel story because at the same time as rich people and middle class people were getting the opportunity to eat special meals out of their home, a lot more people were getting the opportunity to eat domestic meals within the home. So to eat within the home, to eat something more complicated than like bread or some pre-cooked meat, you needed a kitchen and you needed a bunch of utensils like plates and knives and pots and pans and all of that kind of stuff. For the more complicated the meal, the more ornate and complicated the utensils you needed. So working class families' domestic food consumption was often very limited, limited to that kind of boring, bland, and voluminous consumption of local staples like bread, oatmeal, and potatoes day in, day out, cooked simply, eaten only for fuel, not pleasure. 
outside of the home, working class and middle class people could eat in the 18th century at a whole host of different kinds of public eateries. You could get a meal at a tavern or an inn. Uh, one of the most interesting things are called ordinaries, which are places where at set times of the day, a certain group of people come and share a meal, as we would call it, family style. So there'd be a bunch of dishes to come out, uh, put on the central table, and then everybody would help themselves to what they wanted from the dishes and put it on their plate and talk amongst their fellow eaters. Now, this is very different from the restaurant in that it takes place at a set time. There's no menu and so no choice between different kinds of foods and you have to eat amongst other people. This could be comforting for some people who lived in the city and didn't have set social networks, but it could also be annoying to travelers who didn't want to sit next to a smelly old wheelwright while they ate their steak. Indeed, in the 19th century, some French people identified the birth of the restaurant not on this 18th century restorative soup, but rather on their desire to imitate the English habit of eating in inns and taverns. And in cities, there were a whole host of what we would call ready-made or fast food meals that were served on the street. Uh, from the middle of the 19th century, I have a list from one of the great list makers, Henry Mayhew, of all of the different kinds of food hawkers out in the London streets. So if you were walking down the streets of London in 1850, you could get hot eels and pea soup from one cellar, pickled whelks from another, fried fish from another, sometimes maybe with, with uh, french fries, so you'd have fish and chips, sheep trotters from another, baked potatoes, ham sandwiches, pies, boiled puddings, cakes, tarts, gingerbreads, muffins and crumpets, ice cream and coffee all being sold on the street, presumably for consumption out in the street as well. In the 19th century though, as working class people got higher wages and women moved from the workplace to the domestic place, then working class people began to be able to have their own kinds of domestic meals, leading to the legendary Sunday roast dinner, where people would buy a little bit of meat and roast it in their ovens and serve it for the whole family, and then use the leftovers for the rest of the week. But this needed a increase in wages, it needed an increase of domestic comfort, and it needed an increase in the available amount of domestic labor. Before the middle of the 19th century, men and women in working class families were by and large working, and so they didn't have the time to make food. So just as we have the rise of the restaurant in the 19th century, catering to upper class people to make them beautiful, delicious gourmet meals, we also had the rise of the working class domestic family meal. Thanks for listening today. I have to give a big, big, big thanks to Jonathan Lear who gave us our music and to Duncan Barton who made the image. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, post about it on Twitter, do all those things that you do to the internet objects that you like. I will see you guys tomorrow.